brothers and sisters. Just a personal note before I begin this morning's message. I want to thank all of you for your prayers, for your support. Uh, on Tuesday when we had the uh, memorial service for my mother-in-law, Gigi, there were so many of you who were here, many of you who really probably didn't know Herb or Gigi that well. I know you were here to support Herb, but you're also here to support me and Barb. And I just want to express my appreciation. It blessed me to see all the ladies back there getting a meal ready for the family. Uh, I, I went around to each table and said to the people there, what a great church. What a great church. This is such a wonderful church. And I see that from my role as an elder, but to be on the receiving end of that is also a blessing to me too. And I just wanted to express my thanks to you. There's the story of an inexperienced preacher who was scheduled to do a graveside burial service at a pauper's cemetery for a poor and homeless man who had no family and no friends. And not knowing where the cemetery was, he made several wrong turns, and he got lost. And so he arrived about an hour late, and when he got there, he noticed that the hearse was nowhere in sight, the backhoe was next to an open hole, and the workmen were sitting under the tree eating lunch. So the preacher went to the open grave and he looked and the vault lid was already in place and he felt guilty because he was so late. So he preached a very passionate and lengthy service and he sent the deceased to the great beyond in style. And as he returned to the car, walking back to his car, the preacher passed by the workmen and he overheard one of them saying, I've been putting in septic tanks for 20 years and I ain't never seen anything like that. There's probably nothing that's so common to all of us that we talk about less. We will often, sometimes almost daily, talk about things like the weather or the food that we're eating, our favorite sports. We might talk about our family. If we're devoted believers, we might even talk about the Lord daily, about spiritual things, about our relationship with Him. But despite the reality that there's no one that this topic does not affect, we never seem to want to talk about death. It's kind of understandable for those in the world. For those who are atheists or those who are agnostics, I can see why they wouldn't want to talk about it. To them, death means the end of existence. For those who really believe there's no God, if they really believe there's no heaven, there's no hell. The Beatles singer and songwriter John Lennon wrote a popular song called Imagine in 1971. And one line of the song says this, Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Have you heard a better description of what our world looks like? Living for today pretty much describes our world. But shouldn't it be different for those of us who are believers in Christ? Yes, of course we live in the world, and yes, of course we need to live one day at a time. Yet we should always, always be looking forward to the day that the Lord takes us home. I read this scripture I'm going to read now twice this past week, and one was the memorial service for my mother-in-law, Barb's mom, Herb's wife, Gigi Jordan. And I read it again at her graveside committal service a few hours later. I read 
this twice that day, and I'm going to read it there this morning, here again this morning, because there is resurrection power in these words of the Apostle Paul to the Philippian church. In Philippians chapter 1, beginning with verse 21, For to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Now, I have to admit something that some of you may think is a little bit morbid or at the very least weird. Many of you have come to expect weirdness of me. After all, I've been Coach Bill for nearly 25 years. But the very fact that I have to explain my line of thinking at the outset of this sermon is a picture of one of the challenges that we face as believers these days. We don't talk about death. We don't talk about dying. But maybe we should. Maybe we should more, and not just in the context of funerals. St. Isaac the Syrian wrote this, Prepare your heart for your departure. If you are wise, you will expect it every hour. And when the time of departure comes, go joyfully to meet it, saying, Come in peace. I knew you would come, and I have not neglected anything that could help me on the journey. Because so much of my thinking these past few weeks has been consumed, understandably, with this reality of our earthly existence, the reality of death and dying. And because I was scheduled to preach this week, I had a sense that this was not an accident in God's timing. And then we have Dave and Patty and John here mourning the death of a family member as well. But this is not just about the Jordan family. This is not just about the Fosters and the Elans. This is about all of us. We should linger on these thoughts just a little longer. I could have moved on, just get on with life, we're often told, after a funeral. But should we? Should we, as believers in Christ, ponder the meaning of death and how we respond to it? Shouldn't the way we die, as believers in Christ, the way we view death, be different from the world's? Should we be so hesitant to speak of these things when we serve the Lord of Lords who conquered death He conquered death with his cross and resurrection. Shouldn't we consider the biblical truth that the resurrection has consequences in our Christian life today? Consequences that should impact what we think about, what we talk about, and how we think about death and how we live. I have to admit I've spent a lot of time in the past several months thinking about death and dying. It may be because that Barb and I are running what we lovingly call the SAL, Sullivan Assisted Living. I love this picture of Gigi. She had this uh, nose warmer. Her, she was always cold, and she had this. Uh, we bought her this nose warmer. It's a little panda. It's a knit panda. And, and inevitably, when uh, I would come in a room and she'd say, do you like my nose warmer? And, of course, because she had Alzheimer's, she told me this about 949 times. Do you like my Oh, I said, I'd really like it. And then she'd, and then she'd laugh, and she'd say, well, we probably don't have enough uh, yarn to make one for your nose. (laughs) And she'd laugh like she told me that joke the first time, and I'd laugh with her. So I love this picture. But we're running the SAL, Sullivan Assisted Living. And so, you know, these kinds of things 
are very much in our mind. The motto at the SAL is, all's well at the SAL. Because of that, and because my mother-in-law was in a steep decline over the last several months, it would have been foolish not to consider the reality of dying. Also, it may be because I've been involved with the planning of several funerals, and the ones I haven't been involved with planning, I've attended the past year or so. Just in the last few months, there's my mother-in-law, Gigi. There's Jason Feather's grandmother, uh, Ruth Gables. There's Barbara Jackson. Just in the last few years, remember Myrna Henry and Nettie Hudson and Jim Smith and Alan Blackburn right here. I've told so many of you that I appreciate the opportunity to preach funerals, even more so than weddings. Is that weird? So be it. But it's the truth. I've done weddings too, and I love doing them, but I've done more funerals. And there's something about a funeral that is unavoidable. Now, while a good Christian wedding will absolutely have a picture of the gospel included in it, the mystical union between Christ and his church, at a funeral, you cannot avoid the question of what happens to us after we die. What's more, you have a captive audience that expects to hear about this. Many of those attending a funeral never darken the door of a church, except to attend a funeral. I feel the need to explain why I'm thinking about these things because it's not something that most of us think about deeply, seriously over a period of time. It seems strange. It seems different. It seems maybe a little bit morbid. It seems the only time we think of these things is when we have funerals. But many of us haven't been to these funerals. Either we don't have much of a relationship with the person who died or our schedule for one reason or another didn't permit us to... uh, take time off in the middle of the day, or perhaps some of us are just uncomfortable with the whole scene. But many of us don't ever think about death and dying because we don't want to. It makes us uncomfortable. It's not just old folks at TCF should be thinking about these things. You know what? It's all of us. It's all of us. If you're a teenager, basic kids, if you're a teenager, or you're in your 20s, or you're in your 30s or 40s, The thoughts I'm sharing with you this morning are things you need to think about as well. Because of what the Apostle Paul tells us here in this passage, because of what we marked just a few weeks ago in three separate meetings of Holy Week, Jesus' death and his resurrection and all that it means to us. It's important for us to think about death and dying and all these related issues. It's important because despite differences in individual circumstances, Despite differences in medical decisions that are made later in life, there are some common themes that Christians have throughout the centuries thought about and taught about when it comes to death and dying. Paul said to the Philippians that to depart and to be with Christ is far better. Far better than staying in our mortal bodies. The NIV says better by far. Now, let me also say, that this is for believers. He's writing to believers. To depart and be with Christ is better by far for believers. If you're an unbeliever, if you don't know Christ, if you're not in Christ this morning, then it ain't far better. It's not far better. That's a sad but very real truth. But if for the believers it's far better, why are we so distant from these thoughts? If it's far better, then why, when death appears imminent, why do we fight death so fiercely? Why are we so uncomfortable talking about these things? Some years ago, uh, just about a year before my dad died, 
I read a great book called The Art of Dying. It was by an editor of Christianity Today, Rob Mole. In the foreword of that book, we read this. We no longer allow people to say they are dying. Rather, they are battling an illness. Far from encouraging the perilously ill to recognize the imminence of their death, we encourage the sick and their doctors to fight death, but not to prepare for it. Some would say this evasion of death is an improvement. I would say our avoidance of death, far from being an advance, is false, costly, and alienating. We, the church, need to recover the art of dying. We need to allow for dying Christians to be just that, dying Christians who can rail against but also prepare for death. We need to make space for the exhausting, sad work of mourning. Funerals are not just an important milestone for the individual family involved, but they are important in the life of the whole fellowship. If that wasn't true, why would we refer to ourselves as a church family? It's not the individual family, it's all of us. They're important because the things we think about and remember during a funeral are important for our spiritual formation, our discipleship in Christ, our understanding of His grace, and our understanding of His salvation. In the book I referenced a moment ago, The Art of Dying, we read this, our culture simply doesn't know what to think about death. Though through medicine and science, we know more about death and how to forestall it than ever before. Yet we know very little about caring for a dying person. We don't know what to expect or how to prepare for our own death. And we're often awkward at best when trying to comfort a friend in grief. We have come to expect medical breakthroughs, vaccines, and wonder-working drugs. It's clear, he writes, that our paradoxical approach to death is largely due to the fact that we are strangers to death despite it being ever-present. Again, as I noted at the outset, this is common to all of us. It's probably the thing that's most common to all of us that we talk about the least. We see fake death on television programs and in movies, and it's not real to us. We see real death on the news from Asia or the Middle East or even here in our own country, and it's not real to us. Why? Because it's just too distant from us. We have that TV screen separating us from what we're seeing. Death is also not real to us because of some significant changes in the way that people die today in modern times. Did you know that in 1908, only 14% of deaths occurred in a hospital or a nursing home of some kind? By the end of the century, it was nearly 80%. Of course, there's good reasons for that. One of the reasons is that medical science has made a lot of great advancements that prolong life. But the corresponding truth is that it has often also prolonged the dying process. Clearly, medical science has improved things in many ways. And I'm not saying I want to go back to the early 1900s. But one of the side effects is that we're protected now from what dying looks like. Only close family members, most of the time, only close family members and friends see a dying person in the hospital. Unless we're like some of you who've recently had a loved one pass away after an illness, we're strangers to death. Again, except at funerals, which don't happen that often, and many of us don't attend. A journalist named Virginia Morris wrote that all the things that once prepared us for death, regular experience with illness and death, public grief and mourning, a culture and philosophy of death, interaction with the elderly, 
as well as the visibility of our own aging, are virtually gone from our lives. We celebrate youth in our culture, don't we? We don't celebrate the elderly. Because of that, we're more and more distant from it. It hasn't always been this way. It hasn't always been this way in our culture in general, in society anywhere in the world. And it hasn't always been this way among believers in Christ. In every phase of Christian history, the church has considered seriously how to help believers die well and how the family of God can join together in that process to provide hope and support when one of their own dies. Through much of church history, death hasn't just been a medical event. It hasn't just been a medical battle to be fought. Also, it wasn't just about the loss of precious relationships that we would mourn. And though it clearly was, and it clearly still is that. For the church, death was a spiritual event that required preparation. And not just for the person dying, not just for the family and the friends, but for the entire church with the knowledge that it's something that we will all face. Though it seems distant for many of us in the scheme of things, it's, let's face it, life is just a blip on the radar screen of eternity. Life is short. Life is short. In the second half of the 15th century, the plague, those of you who know your history, devastated Europe. Christians were actively involved in helping people during the plague prepare for death because so many were dying. Sometimes nearly whole towns were wiped out by the plague, but Christians were at the forefront of ministering to the dying and to their families. No one was immune. Churches published booklets and tracts on what was called the Ars Moriendi, Latin for the art of dying. That's our sermon title today. There were books about how to practice good deaths. There were some common themes in these booklets, and I want to look at just a few of them here. First of all, one of the common themes was that death requires preparation. Secondly, that dying is a deeply spiritual event. I remember saying at Nettie's funeral that when I was with her and... Uh, Karen Shupak was there and Al Baker was there when the moment Nettie breathed her last, I said it was a holy moment. It was a holy moment. And so that's a reality. Dying is a deeply spiritual event. Death is to be actively undertaken. Death is a public and instructive event. And death injures the community. So today what we're doing is number four on this list. Death is a public, instructive event. A recent death in our fellowship is a public and instructive event. It's not just about the Jordan family. Rob Mole, who wrote the book The Art of Dying, writes this, the Ars Moriendi tradition blossomed not only because of the emergence of the plague, but also because Christian tradition asserted that the death of a follower of Christ was to be different from those who die without faith. This life is only the prelude to an eternal life with Christ, we, like Jesus, will be reunited with our glorified bodies. We will worship God corporately for eternity, so we have reason to hope and reason to be in peace as our life on earth comes to an end. So today, what happens? We know so much more about death, and we know so much more about how to delay it than ever before. Medical science, nutrition, general care for our own health, 
These are the things that many of us rely on, and that's all well and good. Nothing wrong with these things. But here's the truth. Regardless of how well you eat, regardless of your genetic makeup, regardless of your DNA, the uh, longevity you might have in your family history, regardless of how much you exercise and take really good care of yourself, the day will come. Your life on this earth will end. If the Lord does not return first, you will die. If, it's not if you die, it's when you die. Does that seem like a morbid thought? I'm sorry if it does, but death is an undeniable fact of life. That and taxes, right? Because of that, I think it's important for the Christian to prepare both practically and spiritually for this inevitable event in each of our lives and the lives of those we love. It's at least as important as caring for our physical health and well-being, into which we, most of us, invest huge amounts of time and money and energy. Paul thought so. He told Timothy in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, Bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Here's Paul again. He's prioritizing, isn't he? He's comparing. He's contrasting. In this case, bodily discipline on the one hand with godliness or spiritual discipline. He's making the point that the promise of spiritual things benefits us both in the here and now as well as in the life to come. So don't hear me say this morning that you don't need to take care of yourselves, that you don't need to take care of your physical health. Paul didn't say it was of no profit. It's just that by comparison to godliness, it's of little profit. So you know what? I'm going to continue to take advantage of the little profit that I can get by taking care of my physical health and well-being. Believe me, if I attach no importance to that at all, I wouldn't work out six days a week because it's not that much fun. But Paul tells us that godliness is profitable for all things, including the present life and the life to come. That's why to Paul, the thought of death was not in the least bit morbid or out of bounds for discussion. He writes of it almost matter-of-factly. Let me read again the passage we opened with, this time from the NIV. We're reading from Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 26. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. We see several things in this passage that are very instructive for us this morning. First, we see the very real tension between two good things. Life is a good thing, folks. It's a gift of God. Life is a good thing. But so is death for the believer in Christ. Because of her Alzheimer's disease, we miss Gigi even before she went to be with the Lord. It's like she died twice. A week ago last Friday, Barb and I met with nurses that were caring for Gigi, and they told us that morning that she had weeks to live. Six hours later, a further decline was noticed, and they said she had days to live. 
And it turned out to be just hours until she passed into eternity with Jesus. We must, for our own spiritual well-being, release our loved ones to the Lord. God's the one who decides. God's the one who decides, but we need to release our loved ones to the Lord. They never belonged to us anyway. They were only on loan by God's blessing that we had them. We know that Scripture tells us it's appointed for us to die. We know that God has numbered our days. We also know what Paul tells us here in Philippians, to be with Christ is far better. It's true for Gigi and someday for each of us who are Christians. So the Apostle Paul was torn. Herb was torn. Sometimes we are torn in such a situation with a loved one. Sometimes it's hard to know whether to pray for healing or to pray for mercy and grace as God ushers a believer into eternal life. But here's what I think. Sometimes, depending on the circumstances, it depends on your age, it depends on all kinds of things, okay? But sometimes I think it's absolutely appropriate to pray for both. I think it's absolutely appropriate to pray for both. And then to rest in God's perfect plans. God's in charge. And we can rest in peace that he gives us that he's in charge. The King James Version puts it this way in 123. For I am in a strait betwixt two having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Don't you love that word, betwixt? Isn't that a cool word? I wanted to use that translation here 500 years after the King James was released because I thought it would be cool to use a word like betwixt in a sermon. Don't get to do that every week. Paul's essentially saying that he cannot determine easily between two choices that are both good. The words, I am in a strait, or in more modern translation where it says, I am torn, means to feel pressed in, to feel pent up, so we don't know what to do. And here it means some doubt, not knowing which one to choose. One commentary says this, the words of the original are very emphatic. They appear to be derived from a ship when lying at anchor, and when violent winds blow upon it, that would drive it out to sea. The apostle represents himself as in a similar condition. His strong affection for them bound his heart to them as an anchor holds a ship to its moorings. And yet there was a heavenly influence bearing upon him like the gale upon the vessel which would bear him away to heaven. Doesn't our strong affection for our loved ones bind us to them in a similar way? Like an anchor. But will we allow that heavenly understanding of better by far to comfort us and to lead us. Now, as Paul considers this dilemma, it's also clear where he begins. He's thinking here about what's good for him if there were no other considerations. If there's nothing else to think about, it's better by far. I want to be with Christ. He's thinking about what's good for him. At first, in verse 21, he says, for me. For Paul, both choices were good, but to be with Christ, to depart and be with Christ was better by far for him. And that's where his challenge begins. I think it's clear that if Paul didn't have any other consideration other than his own peace, safety, and comfort, he would say, come take me now, Lord. I'm ready. Why else would he say that to be with Christ is better by far? How else could Paul so casually call his very death something so simple as departing? 
I'm departing the church when the service is done. I'm departing my house to come to church. I'm departing. I'm going to die. It's important to understand how forceful these words, better by far, really are. In the Greek, it's a double comparative. It means by far the more preferable. In our vernacular, we might say something like way, 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 way better. It's a very emphatic statement is what it is. Better beyond all expression. That's how Paul understood his death and the death of any believer in Christ. So he had no fear of death. He was absolutely confident that when he departed this life, he would be, by, be with Christ. The very moment he died, he'd be with Jesus. Now, one of my uh, favorite Scottish preachers from the 1800s, how many of you have a favorite Scottish preacher from the 1800s, is named Alexander McLaren. And so uh, work with me here a little bit in some of the archaic language, but this is really rich and deep. I want to read a quote from him about this passage. He says, he speaks of it as departing, a metaphor which does not, like the many flattering appellations which men give the last enemy, reveal a quaking dread which cannot bear to look him in his ashen, pale face. Paul calls him, death, gentle names because he fears him not at all. To him all the dreadfulness, the mystery, the pain, and the solitude have melted away. And death has become a mere change of place. The word literally means to unloose and is employed to express pulling up tent pegs of a shifting encampment or drawing up the anchor of a ship. In either case, the image is simply that of removal. It is but the last day's journey, and tomorrow there will be no packing up in the morning and resuming our weary tramp, but we shall be at home and go out or go mo no more out. So has the awful thing at the end dwindled, and the brighter and greater the land behind it shines, the smaller does it appear. The apostle thinks little of dying because he thinks so much of what? is to come after. Paul reinforced this confidence as well as this tension that we all live with, this torn betwixt, right, in other places in Scripture. He wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Now we know that if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would rather, would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. And so here in this last verse, we see another theme that's also present in what we read in Philippians. We make it our goal to please Him, either here on earth or in the presence of God. In Philippians, Paul noted, it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. And then he wrote, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. 
so that through my being with you again your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Paul had more to do, and he knew it. Paul, despite his struggle, despite being torn betwixt two good choices, was convinced that it was more necessary for his Philippian brothers and sisters in Christ, as well as the other churches he ministered in, that he remain, even though it was better by far for him to be with Christ. Now, of course, it's not as if Paul could actually choose. He didn't really get to choose whether to live or die. That's always God's choice. But the Holy Spirit gave him insight and a confidence so that Paul could say, I know that I will remain. We don't always know like Paul knew. We don't always have a sense of when our time is short. Like Paul did later in his life when he wrote this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Now, because Paul was human like we are, you know, we don't want to lionize somebody to the point where we think they're superhuman in any way. Paul was a guy. He was a guy like we are, okay? But he was probably apprehensive about death, at least in the sense that he'd never done it before. And he also didn't know what the process would feel like. But what was beyond the moment of death was what gave him confidence and hope. And it soothed any fear he might have had about the moment of death itself. Paul's only reason for wishing to die was to be with Christ. It wasn't because he was sick of life. It wasn't because of any sorrow or any pain that he experienced. He wanted to be with his Lord and Savior. He preferred it. Again, quoting Alexander McLaren, many of us cling to life with a desperate clutch, like some poor wretch pushed over a precipice and trying to dig his nails into the rock as he falls. Picture that scene. You're pushed over, you're hanging on by your fingernails, okay? Some of us cling to it because we dread what is beyond, and our longing to live is the measure of the dread of of death. But Paul did not look forward to a thick darkness of judgment or to nothingness. He saw in the darkness a great light, the light in the windows of his father's house, and yet he turned willingly away to his toil in the field, and he was more than content to drudge on as long as he could do anything by his work. Blessed are they who share his desire to depart and his victorious willingness to stay here and labor. They shall find that such a life in the flesh, too, is being with Christ. He is no more in a strait betwixt two or unwitting what he shall choose. In fact, he chooses nothing but accepts the appointment of a higher wisdom. There is rest for him, as for us, in ceasing from our own wishes and laying our wills silent and passive at his feet. One of the many things that all of us can be certain is that what Willard Hudson has said, remember remember Willard? He said, we are immortal until our work is done. We are immortal until our work is done. Those of us who are in Christ are immortal until our work is done. Paul knew when he wrote to the Philippians that his work wasn't done. When he wrote to Timothy, he had a sense that his work was nearly complete, so he spoke of his impending death differently. 
whatever medical decisions we make under any circumstances, we can live out our faith in God, we can live out our love for one another, and our confidence in the resurrection. Death is still, as Paul wrote, the last enemy. It's not a part of God's primary, original purpose for his creation. Yet, for the follower of Christ, death is a part of God's mercy. It's the last of life's miseries. It's the beginning of new life in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the maker of the universe. Rob Mole writes, There is no evil so great that God cannot bring joy and goodness from it. This is why death deserves attention in life. Because we instinctively want to avoid it, to turn our face away, it is good to look death in the eye and constantly remind ourselves that our hope is in God who defeated death. God has defeated death through Christ. God wins, folks. Death loses. God wins and death loses. When I read the closing scripture that we're going to hear here in just a moment, and I almost always read this passage when I do the graveside. It's called the graveside committal. I often remind those present that this is kind of like, and this is a a way that I can relate to it, and some of you may be able to as well. This is kind of like the ultimate trash talking. You know how people brag on the basketball floor or the football field, huh? You can't beat me. I'm better than you. It's kind of a form of intimidation. It's called talking trash. I'm taking you to the hoop, and you can't do anything about it. And then you take them to the hoop, and they can't do anything about it. Once I was playing a game of basketball around the world with Bill Sanders. You know, how how many of you know what around the world is to play basketball? Some of you don't, so let me explain it to you. Okay, there's the basket, and you you go basically to five spots. You've got to make a layup, and you make this shot, and you go around. You're going around a circle, and you're making shots. Now, what you have to do is you have to make the shot, and then you get to keep going. If you miss the shot, you can do what we call chance it. And then if you miss the second shot, you've got to go all the way back to the beginning. Okay? So if you've gone halfway around and then almost all the way back, sometimes you want to chance it because you don't want to have to do it all over again, right? Well, I was playing around the world with Bill Sanders, and Bill was quite a hoopster, let me tell you. And even with Parkinson's, I always used to tease him that I was going to hide his Parkinson's med before we played so I could beat him. But I got, we were playing around the world, and I got about halfway around, and I decided to stay put. I wasn't going to chance it. And Bill looked at me with that little twinkle in his eye that some of you remember. He said, are you sure? I said, yes. And he said, you shouldn't have done that. And then he proceeded to make every shot, going all the way around the course and win the game. <laughs> he did. After that, I often called him the trash-talking pastor. He talked trash before he beat me, and then he backed it up by doing what he said he was going to do. God wins, my brothers and sisters. God wins. Jesus won the victory for those of us who are in Christ. So death no longer has the last say. We shouldn't think about these things only at funerals or just when somebody has recently died or only if we're older. We should think about these things every day because even if we're young, there's the reality that we never know how many days we will have on this earth. 
and the reality that God wins should affect our every choice in life. Listen now as Paul talks trash to death. Listen to his declaration of victory because it's already complete, though not yet necessarily made apparent to us. And listen for his final admonition of how we should live our lives doing the work of the Lord in light of his victory over death. We're reading from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 58. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen? Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the direction and the clarity of your word. We're grateful for the realities, the truths that we have marked and even celebrated this morning, Father, that God wins and death loses. Father, we're grateful that because we are in Christ, we can talk about these things with confidence in you, confidence where we will spend eternity, confidence that you have our days numbered, And confidence, Father, that we can continue to walk wholeheartedly with you in light of your resurrection, in light of the resurrection that we can experience in eternity, Father. We thank you for these truths, Lord. We pray that these truths would bring us comfort when we need it. These truths would bring us strength. And these truths would form and shape us, Father, into your image more and more each day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.